Med Family is a show about a family journeying through medical school with kids and navigating married life. Tag along to see how we got here and where this journey is taking us. Hello, welcome to another week of our podcast, Med Family. I am Eric Acker, the host with Karen. Hey guys. Um, so we are obviously recording many days late and uh, I think that's just going to be kind of the norm at this point. We are, <laughs> well, we are, we're on 8 South. Um so we For are this back week on and next. step down. Yeah. We're, so we're getting the the acute, very acute patients and uh, trying to deal with being an intern and being, you know, what all intern life is like and dealing with the insecurity and, and, uh, and lack of confidence in what you're doing. And that buys into not getting stuff done very quickly. So, a lot well, of, a and there's... Of, Family stuff going on too, so. I guess so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what family stuff? Oh well, like this week was the first week of faith formation for the kids, oh, so that was okay. something that, extra. That and like, we have more? like, I, I think ten doctor's appointments within the next month and a half. So <laughs> we're catching up on everything. We're that catching we up. <laughs> but I, I will say, like, as much as this is my second go round with. Eight South. I, I've not been on any other floor besides Eight South, so it's kind of crazy. I know what that means or what that what they're trying to tell me, but it. I don't know anything different, but I would I would say like compared to my first week on Eight South, I feel slightly better. Um, I am still I think stumbling along here and there, but I think generally speaking, I'm not as late. I don't know. You can tell me. No, Eric hasn't come home. Quite as late. Um, and then two, like your text messages throughout the day um, <laughs> are more optimistic. <laughs> well, minus the one uh, I think. Uh, <laughs> minus, <laughs> minus Thursday, but Thursday was an exception because there was only two of them. There was two of us interns, but one second year, and the third year senior was out doing interviews. And the other intern was on on their day off, and it was a didactics day, so that means there's like three hours of the day that's completely carved out for something else, and you can't really get work done. Your attending is supposed to be watching your patients, but a lot of the 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 chats and the nurses still go directly to you. And anyway, it can be <laughs> very uh, stress inducing during that time, especially when you have patients who are critically ill and you are trying to uh, convert therapies from one like I had I think I've had DKA patients during this time and it's like converting them off of insulin and uh, <laughs> and stopping the insulin infusion uh, and starting the sub Q insulin and eat, making them having them eat and all doing all that stuff is tricky to do when you're away from your computer away from the floor and you're just in, in between lectures and talks, you're trying to uh, answer messages, put in orders and whatnot. And then, of course, those that's three hours you don't have to, to write your notes. So, And then I think I had two discharges that day as well. So I had to get those discharges. Those were 
those needed to be done sometime between rounding and, and didactic. So that was fun. And also with um, all things with discharges, uh, you do your medical medi medication reconciliation, you do all the other stuff you're supposed to do in orders. And then like inevitably as an intern, I feel like I kind of miss, a f yeah, I miss this, I miss that. And then of course we have care coordinators. We have uh, pharmacists that will step in and be like, hey, uh, you sure you want to do this? And then you look it over again and be like, uh, I think so, but maybe we need to make a few adjustments to that. So anywho. It's been, it's been a, a super fun week, and we have one more. I'm going to get two weeks more of 8 South, so this, this is a week one ending, and I have one more week next week, so. Yep, and then we'll have a week off, so um, It's supposed to be clinic, but I, I yeah. we took it off. So, so theoretically, uh, <laughs> that week should be on time, and hopefully we can bank a few um and then after that, Eric will go to ED schedule. Yes, which um, we finally got. We did finally get the schedule for, um, and it was a lot of what we thought. We thought a lot of weekends. Um, all, all weekends. Uh, all weekends. <laughs> we, yeah. I don't have a weekend <laughs> off <laughs> during the ED rotation at all. No, there are some days where I'm like, oh, we could probably go to church. But and then I was like looking at it, I was like, no. Because he he he's going into work at like ten o'clock at night and not getting home till eight o'clock yeah, in the morning. That's not going to happen. Yeah, I've heard it's okay. Like the rotation is actually not terrible, just because a this they don't expect a whole lot from internal medicine residents on the in their ED compared to the ED residents. So you're not really expected to take a lot of patients. You're um, yeah, that's essentially it. So, you, and then of course I've heard that the attendings and the residents are all very good and very nice. So they they help you out a lot, um, and so that's I think what we're just looking forward to, <laughs> just trying to learn a little bit of the ED emergency medicine, which hasn't always been a strong suit for me. And so I'm hoping at the end of it, maybe I'll have a little bit more confidence in dealing with some more urgent or emergent issues. Um, but they they like to give the weekends off to a lot of their residents. So when their residents are on on uh, I forgot what the term is, but they're on their own rotations and in their ED they like them weekends off, and so that's why a lot of the internal medicine residents will get weekends. So we are covering basically those weekends uh, but it does mean we get like three days off during the week we get like i think there's a few days a few weeks where i have like tuesday wednesday thursday off yeah so i'll get actually more days off in a week on this ed rotation than i will ever get on an internal medicine rotation yeah. so it's really not and it much did, to complain about <laughs> it did work out relatively nice um we are having our middle son uh, tested for several different therapies. Um, and so a lot of his appointments are during those days. So um, I won't have to pay for a babysitter <laughs> for yes. a good majority of those appointments, which is nice. Yes. Yeah, that, that is, uh, uh, yeah, we're, we're trying to make a lot of things work. And when I'm on floors, it's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to be like, oh, Eric can be reliably off at this time. 
and especially during working days, it's like one day off a week, and it's hard sometimes hard to predict ahead of time what that's going to be. So, like obviously, I have to, today is my day off, my Friday, and then I work till Thursday. Thursday, I have Thursday off, and then I will work the weekend, and then I'll have that week off because it's my vacation week. And then we're back into ED, so it's it's okay. It's a it's a it's a process, right? Um, I will say the eight self. I mean, as much as I feel like maybe a little bit more experience has been helpful, and I think eight self is just going to continue to help me grow as a physician, learn lots of different things, <laughs> do different things. Uh, I think additionally, I've had another um, felt another. Trinity graduate with me on the rotation. He's a he's an ED resident, and they like to put the ED residents on Eight South, and <laughs> I think it's just a good learning experience for them because it's not it's not they, ED does do an ICU rotation as well, um, but it's not like the floors. A lot of times, like the floors, you'll have patients that aren't very very sick. Like maybe they're sick, maybe they're in the hospital for a reason, but like. Maybe they're waiting for placement. Maybe they're just waiting for treatment courses to finish up. Maybe they're just waiting to get a little bit better before they go home. Um, whereas 8 South is, these people either should be in the ICU or <laughs> are about ready to be in the ICU or are coming from the ICU. So these are patients who are a little bit more acute. And I think ED. If you want to go into ED, you'd rather see some kind of more acute patients and know how to manage them because I think that probably translates okay in the ED. And then, uh, of course, when they go to critical care, they have to do critical care kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, and they are the patients that they see and then admit from the... Because when you were on admit team, there was a lot of DKA patients that they admitted that went to... Eight South because they don't tend to go to ICU unless you're like in a coma. Yeah, you're not going to go to ICU. Other facilities that might be different. Other facilities they might keep uh, DKA patients in the ICU um, just because those patients require um, titration of insulin infusions. They require very close monitoring and because if you don't do DKA right you could the patient can die <laughs> um, so it is important to kind of do it right and uh, good observation good constant surveillance and so a lot of facilities that's just the best place for that is on an ICU floor as opposed to a regular floor room just because like floors are set up very differently, hospital, hospital, nursing ratios and whatnot. And 8 South is set up, it's not as, I think I don't think it's as nurse-heavy ratio as like the ICU would be, but it's better than the floors. And so that's why I think they think that they feel like it's okay for a lot of DKA patients to end up on 8 South is because the ratios are a little bit better than the floors, they're a little bit more used to the acuity, so it becomes like a a sub ICU, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Uh, and then sometimes we do get patients who uh, it does appear that they are sent to us to die, um, and that kind of sucks. But that's I think that's some, unfortunately the nature of medicine. Not everyone is somebody you can save. So that's 
a difficult thing to kind of live with. It's a difficult thing in general. Just a lot of patients who are coming to you who are just so sick. They have chronic conditions that are not going to get better, like cancers and stuff like that. And they are, there's not, we're, we can stabilize them best we can, but like it's going to get them eventually. And sometimes it's like, well, yeah, they're very sick. This, the, the disease is going to get them within the next few days. And that's when we have to have the goals of care conversations. We have to talk about DNR, comfort care, hospice, all the fun things. Uh, <laughs> not exactly my strongest suit, um, but definitely something that you, I, I, I do need to learn and would like to learn more about just because that's going to be another thing that I would have to do probably as a doctor at some point, <laughs> at least, at least not in the, if not in the residency, then maybe if I become a hospitalist or if I go fellowship and do uh, other stuff. So it's just a good, I think, good, good idea to learn this stuff now. Yeah. Um, you're learning a lot of other things as well. So, um, how far like you can transfer a patient, what, um, because I know as a, a surgery coordinator in Washington, um, you did a lot of the, the trying to find people like sniffs or alfs to go to, or f- <laughs> from. I think the, I know what you're talking about. From the, <laughs> from the hospital, but like, I, there's a patient that they have now that well, we don't have him anymore. He's he's off. Oh floor. well, but he. I think they wanted to be like trans. They wanted to go back to. Like the North a East, different state, like yeah. Very far away. And that and, that's not doable. And the care coordinators <laughs> are like, no, we're not doing that. Like, <laughs> we are not trying to set up care for this patient in a completely different area. That's just not going to work. But um, so like there are limitations to what you can do. However, you're also learning like um, power of attorney or, or legal guardianship who has that and the different paperwork you may have to do depending on if it's a family member or if it's a state. Um, which is interesting because that's not something like when it's, it's not doctory. I mean, it is doctory stuff because doctors have to do it, but it's not exactly like you, know, you went to medical school, you know, all of this fun stuff and it's not, uh, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's stuff we didn't, we didn't really learn this in medical school, um, at all, but yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, it's diff- a different experience, I suppose. I mean, I did learn medicine sort of stuff. Like we had a patient, um, that had NSTEMI, so I learned a little bit more about NSTEMI treatments and um, actually, interestingly, the discharge because it, it was something that I haven't actually seen. I would have to dig a little bit more in the books to or the online resources to kind of figure out because I had a patient, tronins were pretty high. I mean, not the highest I've ever seen, but they were going up. They had chest pain, uh, cardiology was involved, did heart calves. Didn't find anything on the heart cast, so no stents were placed. And so this is where the, oh my gosh, what's, have you've heard of this. You've heard of this, like, patient with chest pain and heart calf is negative. And, of course, there's, like, a few different differentials that come out of that. And um, the two that kind of stood out to me were, like, vasospasm, which is something we do learn about in medical school. And then the other one is myocardial infarction. Uh, with non-occlusive coronary artery, which is kind of is exactly what it sounds like, <laughs> a myocardial infarction uh, of non-occlusion, a non-occlusionary coronary artery. So basically the coronary artery is not occluded. Um, 
so where's myocardial infarction coming from? And uh, basically, the best I could tell when I was looking it up, uh, and again, this is a very quick and dirty lookup, was that like you had the coronary arteries that you know and learn about, the, the major vessels of the heart, and then on like angiogram or calf lab, you can see some, maybe some smaller branches, but like not the very smallest branches. And so that's the ones that are possibly occluded. Those are the ones that are possibly uh, causing the blood flow loss and causing the tronins to become elevated because of the damaged heart tissue. Um, but they're not in any way a spot that you can put a calf, you can bring your catheter in and then put a stent in or anything like that. You can't really see it even. I mean, this is why when they do the calf lab, they come back and go, we didn't see any obstructions. And so we didn't put a stent in or anything like that. And, and then the patient's chest pain kind of goes away and you're just like, okay, well, we didn't do anything. And <laughs> we, we, we did things, we investigated, but like we didn't see anything crazy. Um, so what do we do? And so we, it, it was interesting because I, Sent the patient home, and, and technically, you know, it's a non-ST elevated myocardial infarction. The ST ele- uh, there was no ST elevations noted on ECG, but uh, it also goes by the um, like min minoco coa something like that M I N uh, O C A. Um, that's the myocardial infarction of with non-occlusive coronary artery. <laughs> so. Um, uh, Sorry, I just charged the patient, and like the hospital has some staff members that kind of make sure that the discharged patients get the standard guideline directed medications. And they were like, Well, why didn't this patient leave with Flavix? Um, and this is something that I've talked about with my attending. And at some point, we had agreed during this patient's stay not to do Flavix because cardiology was still doing their interventions. And but now I'm getting this message after the patient's been discharged that why, you know, why haven't you sent this patient home with Plavix? These messages. And so I reached out to my attending and he reached out to cardiology because he, I mean, I read, well, when I, what I was reading online was like, well, this patient left end STEMI, they should have Plavix, they should have dual antiplatelet therapy. Uh, they should have basically every, all the things. And my attending was like, no, that doesn't sound right. He roped in cardiology because cardiology didn't provide any extra recommendations above what we already did. And cardiology was like, no, because we didn't see any occlusion. There was no plaques. Uh, yes, the differentials are these, but no Plavix is indicated for these patients, and which was good to know. Um, my attending, I think, was going to fix up everything that they needed in order to kind of make sure that we are following the guidelines and, um, I think, safety metrics or something like that. There's some metrics that we're basically trying to make sure we we meet uh, hospitals are judged by. Um, so we want to make sure that we're documenting well enough that um, whatever governing body looks at this later on in the future won't look at this and be like, this, this was a patient that wasn't treated according to guidelines. So, anywho. Um, is that something that the hospital creates their own guidelines, or is it something that... Um, no, this is uh, to standard of care, essentially. Okay. So, like, if you have a heart attack and they find a, a coronary vessel is occluded and they put a stent in, uh, all patients should be discharged with um, anti-pla- dual antiplatelet therapy. So, okay. aspirin and Plavix would be an example of that. 
Okay. Um, that's just standard of care. Uh, obviously, when you put a stent in, you're you're concerned about uh, immediately after uh, the stent can have thrombuses form on them, and like it seems kind of interesting. Like you put a stent in to deal with a thrombus or uh, of a, a plaque uh, occluding the vessel, and then immediately you create a plaque on the on the stent, and that's why you have drug eluding stents. But I think initially, right after placement, you're at a pretty high risk for. Uh, formations on the stent or around the stent and so you have to be like that's why a lot of times I think cardiologists load patients on Plavix while they're in the cath lab uh, not having done a, I don't want to put my foot too far out there <laughs> not having been in a cath lab since like end of my third year <laughs> I don't really know 100% so um, generally speaking just if the patient has a heart attack generally you are going to be looking at Plavix, uh, dual antiplatelet therapy with Plavix and aspirin. Um, but even though this is technically, I would say the leading differential was myocardial infarction with non-occlusive coronary artery. I, the, I know Plavix apparently is required for that one. Uh, okay. other, other lesson kind of learned was Sometimes when you want to do what's best or you, you want to at least make steps towards um, guideline-directed medical therapy, so I think in the past, I don't know if we've talked about uh, heart failure, um, but uh, when you have patients with heart failure, you want to do what's called goal-directed, guideline-directed medical therapy, and that includes a bunch of different medications. So sometimes you want to just start them on on all the medications or some of them to try to get, you know, try to get a foothold on stuff that is going to decrease mortality or has been proven to decrease mortality in some of these patients. So like for uh, congestive heart failure, I'm going to probably mess this up, but basically an SGLT2 has been a new addition to that guideline, but also consider um, it's an ACE ARB and then uh, or Entresto, Entresto being the best. I think ACE is next best, ARB the least best out of that category. You need a beta blocker, but only one of the three, bisprofilol, uh, carbidiol, or metropolol succinate are the three beta blockers that have proven track records of decreasing mortality. And then... Uh, Oh, um, and now um, I think it's now dosterone antagonist, so like a spirolactone um, or pyranone, I think are the two in that category. So those are the guideline-directed medical therapies. <laughs> but big but here, um, sometimes you can't put patients on these medications um, <laughs> because they have heart failure. These are the medications that are going to keep their hearts from remodeling badly and that you could use and it was going to decrease mortality but like what what do you think is going to happen when you put someone on an ace and a beta blocker and uh well they're gonna the blood pressure is gonna drop so you can't you can't hit them hard and fast with that it's, you know, put them into hypotension hypotension so you you got to start them off small so okay, so I'm, I'm batting around i'm kind of going around this a little bit so an SGL, uh, SGLT, SGL2, SGLT2, sorry, it's a, it's a diabetic drug. So like, uh, I think Farsiga and Giardians, uh, no, it's Farsiga, and, I think Giardians, but 
don't hold me to that off the top of my head, but <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I don't remember these a lot of these drugs off the top of my head. But they um, act by basically dumping glucose into the urine, which pulls off fluid, and so that's kind of a diuretic sort of effect. Um, it's also great. For, I mean, it's a drug we use for diabetes, but apparently they find that it works great for heart failure as well. So that's a diuretic. <laughs> that can be a problem. Um, obviously, spirolactone is a diuretic of sorts. Um, so all these things you got to be kind of cautious about. All diuretics can can affect blood pressure to some degree. Uh, obviously, lisinopril it can affect blood pressure quite a bit. And but if you have a patient with end stage renal di- uh, renal disease, then aces are probably not going to be very much of use. But <laughs> I mean, at least diuretics aren't going to be very much of use. Ace. Uh, if you probably not a big deal if you have end stage renal disease on dialysis because you're not going to hurt the kidneys more. Uh, this is where it's like always fun when you do. Patient has, um, I think it's like patient has end stage renal disease. Give them a high protein diet. Patient has chronic kidney disease stage three, low protein diet. Because <laughs> you're like you're trying to keep the trying to keep the kidneys alive, trying to keep the kidneys alive. Kidneys are dead. Don't don't care anymore. <laughs> so, so well, to, I feel like we had this conversation in the car one day, where the most effective drug was also the most expensive drug, and so you also have to take into account, like, if I put my patient on this drug, when they leave the hospital, are they actually going to be able to afford? To pay for the continuation exactly. of this drug. Yeah. So like I was mentioning like Farsiga and I was mentioning Giardians and, and I briefly mentioned Entresto. Um, Entresto is the absolute best of the, of the, like if you have Ace Arb and Entresto and you could, you could choose, you, you don't want to double up, obviously. Don't, don't double up. Don't do an Ace and Entresto. That's not a good idea. But like... If you're like, oh, I can get this patient lisinopril or I can do Entresto, give Entresto. Entresto is the best. has the most significant reduction in mortality. However, it is also one of the most expensive. <laughs> so you um, run the risk, uh, obviously, like Karen was saying, if you give this to a patient who has like no financial means, it's going to be really hard to for them to that prescriptions whereas lisinopril is cheap um it's been out there for a long time Uh, well it's just like it's it's why a lot of of the um elderly population that we serviced from our pharmacy (laughs) in washington they were on warfarin like yeah, there yeah. are better drugs Uh, that you don't have so many better drugs (laughs) (laughs) that you don't have to test your yeah, warfarin. There's only thing that kind of jumps out at me for warfarin is heart valve, like artificial heart valves. Patients, I think, generally have to be on warfarin. Uh, otherwise, like the other ones are just so much better. Like uh, Eliquis and Zeralto are just like way better at treating patients in general. So, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's warfarin is not great, uh, not preferred. And I, sorry, we. we we were dealing with a technical issue, but uh, Karen had made a mention, like, isn't that the drug you have to, like, constantly check? Yeah, yes. you have to constantly <laughs> check blood levels. 
And then, but you're thinking about these patients, they're, most of them are on Medicare. And so when it gets to be that time where they hit their gap, <laughs> the donut hole, the donut hole, um, and have to pay for all their co-pays. Are you, are you able to explain that in like, like, I don't 30 mem- seconds. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't remember the uh, price point, but well, and it's probably changed. Just the general. High but price. in general, Medicare will pay for the grand majority of everything up until you hit a certain price point. And then you have to cover, I don't know if it's like $1,000 or, or more. I think, I think it's more in co-pays. And then once you have covered that portion, then it goes back to Medicare covering the majority basically of everything again. Basically all of it. Yeah, basically all of it. So you'll get these people who have had all of their medications covered up until generally October, September, October was generally the point oh, where okay. most most of these patients hit the donut hole. Um, and then they're all looking for something cheaper. <laughs> yeah. Or, or like, what, what is going on? Why does this cost so much yeah. suddenly? And it's really unfortunate because it all hits about the time when they're like looking towards Christmas and their family is actually going to spend some time with them and they want to buy a gift, but they're on a, on a budget. And so you just feel really bad for them. Yeah, um, for sure. <clears throat> but Anyways, that's yeah. Sorry, I just wanted to. We, we <laughs> kind of alluded to it. I feel like it's worth mentioning. Yeah. yeah. So, um, a, lo- a lot of the patients um, would try and go on a cheaper medication for a while, which never. I mean, it doesn't work because you do have to spend the money before you hit, before well, you get and, out of the donut hole. And it's hard. Like, I mean, if you were going to switch off of like Eloquist to Warfarin, even for a short period of time, it's still. It's is this double-edged sword, especially on patients who maybe don't don't have Medicare, or maybe they're all self-paying patients. So it's like you double-edged sword in the sense that you don't just take warfarin and you, you you oh I just take a set dose and that's it. Like you're constantly going back in, getting rechecked, making sure your your levels are okay, that you're not hypertherapeutic. And then, you know, if you are hypertherapeutic or subtherapeutic, then they have to adjust the dose again and come have you come back in and double check. And it's just like a constant yin and yang. And like everything affects warfarin. <laughs> like if you decided you wanted to be super healthy and you were going to have collard greens a whole bunch of days, like suddenly that's lessening the effect of warfarin. You're going to be subtherapeutic and now you have to adjust your dose again. And it's hard to be consistent because that's going to be like the word there is if you're on warfarin, you need to be consistent. You eat the same stuff week after week because, and you don't change your medication because even medications can affect the drug. So it's just like very consistent in order to keep a very therapeutic level. And even then it's hard. Um, not, and then of course all those appointments, you know, you have to go to the doctor constantly lab draws, everything like that all adds cost everything so it's hard um i did hear and it's worth it's worth thinking about um that pharmacies might actually have like coupons or programs that patients can take part in especially probably the low income patients that will provide some of these drugs for like a year um 
depending on the drug, depending on like like um, Zeralto or Aliquis and stuff like that. We we were dealing with a patient that had P. It wasn't mine, but one of, someone on the floor had somebody had a patient of PE, and they were talking about how the guy the patient probably couldn't afford these things, and they were trying to get him on um, one of the uh, Doax, um, so Zeralto or. Um, uh, not Zyloflex, sorry, uh, Zeralto or Eloquist. And um, they were like, oh, we can get them on for a year. This program basically gives them the medication for a year. But the problem was that this patient now needs lifetime uh, medication. It's because he's, this is not his first PE. So no. now, like, that's great. We can get him in for, like, six months or a year or whatever it is. But, uh you know what what happens after that what happens after the year like so yeah. but well, that depends on the pharmacy too yeah well and these programs are i think national programs mm-hmm. i think but so something to kind of keep in mind if you have a patient you just need to get them through a few months of um anticoagulation on Eloquist, Zeralto, the other ones <laughs> uh, i think berlinta i could be wrong but yeah. um then yes, talk to your pharmacy. Maybe your pharmacy has a program that could help the patient out and you can give them the better drug without having to see the patient every other week seemingly and adjusting their warfarin. Uh. Do keep in mind though, just from my experience in in Washington and Oregon, (laughs) they have specific laws with how you package medications when they go to an assisted living or a skilled nursing facility. And so those, you most likely will not be able to use those programs if your patient is going into one of those oh, cares. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's... Care facilities. But then again, hopefully they're on a Medicare stay, and so it gets covered anyways. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll see. I mean, it's a... <laughs> yeah, I mean, these volume. patients don't... Not all these patients go to care facilities, yeah. but, but yeah, that's a good point, yeah. Because um, certain states do have certain laws and certain... Even in any facility in general, some facilities have rules that they just get all their prescriptions from one spot. And anyway, that that is something I haven't had to deal with myself. That's not really something that I've had to tackle as a physician. Um, and I don't think you probably will have to. No, that's the and usually the care coordinators have to work with that and work with the facilities. And the facilities will like, oh, we'll accept this patient. And like from our standpoint, like it's fine. We don't really care. Um, <laughs> on the placement, <laughs> the placement, great. Um, and they're ready to go home, then great. Um, but I, sorry, this has been a little bit of a tangent bit from what I started with. I meant sorry. to. No, it's fine. <laughs> this is this is an, uh, at least educational, right? Um, <laughs> maybe I don't know. But one, what I was trying to get to is like we was trying to start a patient on goal directed medical management or medical therapy uh, for a heart failure, and so we started the med- medication. And the blood pressure, it was okay. It wasn't great. It was like borderline hypotension. Like we, it was normal tensive, but borderline hypotensive when we added the second drug, after we added the second drug. Cardiology, you know, dealt with this patient, did a, they did a procedure and they said, the patient's cleared for discharge and please discontinue the ACE. Uh, or the ARB, I think it was. Anyway, like they, they were like, his blood pressure is not good enough to to keep him on these things. So please take him off, even though it's goal directed. Um, 
the lesson there, and that was what my attending kind of mentioned to me is was like, yeah, sometimes it's great that we start these medications and we we had the the best of intentions, but sometimes it's good to talk to <laughs> cardiology or the other specialist that is managing the condition uh, before we just start something because they might stop it. And it just, it's not necessarily bad for the patient. It just looks bad when like, one doctor starts a drug and then the next day the next doctor stops it like it just kind of looks bad so maybe something to kind of keep in the back of your mind if you're going to start something on a patient that is as as the primary team but another doctor another specialist is working on that patient it might not be the worst idea to run it by them I don't know. It, it's a tough thing because, like, in the end, end of the day, you are the primary team. So just like in the beginning of this whole conversation, I talked about Plavix. Um, as much as I think the nurses roped in the doctor, uh, the cardiologist team and said, oh, you guys didn't prescribe Plavix. <laughs> um, it it wouldn't have really been the card. If, if this was actually applicable, if this was something that the patient should have been discharged on, in this case, not. But it would have fallen on me to do the prescribing because I am the primary. Oftentimes the consulting groups don't have to put in the orders, don't have to do the prescriptions. Uh, They can put in the recommendations. And if they miss the recommendation, that maybe they hold a little bit of, uh, it's a little bit on them, but at the end of the day, I'm the primary, so I I get to make those decisions. So, um, fun. (laughs) <laughs> sorry that was uh, a little bit of a roundabout the only other thing i wanted i know we don't we don't want to go too late today because i gotta be up pretty early tomorrow yep. but uh the only other thing i wanted to talk about and i'm going to talk around it because we had a morbidity and mor- uh, mortality conference during didactics and i've been to a couple before they were handled a little bit differently uh, the, at least the um, the tone was different in the other ones I've been to, and so I don't and I I don't really know all the rules in and out of these conferences. Uh, generally, on the on when we when they before they even start, they talk about how this is a, a learning environment. There's confidentiality, of course, that's a, a implied. That it, it kind of comes across as like we're going to talk about something very sensitive. That stays here. <laughs> and so I don't, I can't talk really specifically about the case at all. But what I wanted to talk, I kind of wanted to hone in on uh, one of the takeaway messages that um, the so a, a third year typically does the uh, the conference, or at least runs the presentation, and then the floor kind of opens up and has questions, and they voice their opinions, and uh, it's kind of a, a time for people to ask questions and then get responses and hear from other perspectives um and i found myself like agreeing half the time and disagreeing the other half so and i've had a little bit more time to think about it it's been a day (laughs) i've had a day to think about it um so essentially it kind of boiled down to uh there was a, a a big theme there's multiple little factorials that kind of went into the issues that were discussed, but one of the ones was they felt that the person, the intern that did the discharge of the patient should have stood up for themselves and said no. And that 
that kind of struck me as interesting. So um, <laughs> basically, the implication is is that somebody who may not have been stable for discharge is being discharged. That's kind of setting that scene, and the intern is supposed to tell the attending, "I will not discharge this patient." So I think on its face, sure. That I mean that that makes sense. Like as a doctor, you are the doctor. You are taking care of this patient. You probably shouldn't discharge a patient you don't feel is safe to discharge. On its face, that makes sense. But <laughs> I know as an intern myself, there are plenty of times when I don't know if a patient should be discharged, or I don't know if the patient should stay. Um, I. I don't know sometimes if like the patient should go to be downgraded off of step down because it's not because I'm, I'm an imbecile. It's because I lack experience. I lack clinical experience that tells me this patient looks fine. This is the new baseline normal <laughs> and you should be okay. Well, and to be fair in this case, I think this case is, a few months old, well, so if you... I don't really want to talk about the case Yeah, I know itself. you don't want to talk about the case itself, but it's a few months old, so if you think about it even further, like, the intern hadn't been an intern for very like, long. Like, this was, like, a ba- uh, probably the intern's first floor rotation. And so that's what's kind of my sticky point, is, like, the, the whole notion, the, the, one of the biggest messages that the third year was trying to say is that the intern should have stood up to the attending. And they, they said you, they could have put in the medication orders for discharge, and they could have done the discharge summary, but not done the discharge order. And say, I don't want to do the discharge. I, I don't think I, this patient should be discharged. I'm not doing discharge order. Now, <laughs> again, I, I think... Sure. If you're if you're confident and you know it, then go for it. That that's that's not a wrong idea. That's not a wrong thing. If you don't feel like a patient is safe to discharge, don't discharge. Uh, you are a doctor. But again, this is probably this. Like, let's say this is the intern's first floor rotation. They are being thrown into it. They're trying to figure out how everything works on top of everything else. How does the hospital run? Where do they need to go to get stuff? You know, where in the medical record do they put things in? Where do they put the orders in? And they have to see all the patients. They, ha- I mean, <laughs> a lot of these teams are built with. You have two interns that see the entire. They split the team. They, you know, they see all the patients for that team. You have a senior that's supposed to oversee everything. And I just talked to my senior this last week, and basically the senior's job is to, besides know everything about the the entire patient load, they are supposed to see patients who are going to either downgrade, discharge, or are very sick. The ones that are, you know, we're just continuing management on, you know, maybe they're not very sick, maybe they're they're doing better but not quite ready for discharge or downgrade. Like, they don't need to see those patients. They do need to see the ones that they're going to discharge. <laughs> so they do need to see the ones that they're going to downgrade so that they can speak confidently during rounds that, yes, this patient does need to be discharged. And they also go to COC rounds. They go to, we have this thing where the care coordinators meet with the team 
And then there's another person from the hospital, like a medical director, and they'll go through the entire census on that floor. And they'll talk about, like, what's the game plan with this patient? What's the discharge plan? Can this patient be discharged, et cetera, et cetera. Interns don't go to that at all. <laughs> that's, not our, that's not what we do. Um, not, at, not at this point. Um, so the senior has to know that. So the senior has to have seen this patient. <laughs> agreed with a discharge. So I guess what I'm trying to say is like, it's it seems a little unreasonable to do a look at an intern in their first month and on the first floor rotation and say, you need to stand up to your attending. And it, honestly, like, it's not just your attending at this point. It's your attending and your senior. And you are the one that has the literal least amount of clinical experience on the team. <laughs> so I just think, uh, while I, I agree with the sentiment and the mentality, I just don't think that as an intern, I don't know if I would have had the clinical experience to say confidently, I don't think this patient is stable enough to go home. Well, there have been instances where you have come home and you've been like... I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, well, or or I ordered this because I was told to order this, but I don't know if that would have been the choice that I would have made. And it's not that... It, it just was different of opinion. Just difference of opinion. And that's fine. I mean, you're going to have that with doctors. That's why people go and get second but, opinions and third opinions. But, like, it would be very hard, I think... To stand up to, to well, senior, yeah, so your senior and yeah. they're attending, and I'm not, and I'm not trying to piss and moan about this too much, <laughs> but I, I would say like, even then, even in that scenario you just described, I come home and I, I'm not, not sure if I'd fully agreed with the plan, but we went ahead and did it. All those patients did just fine. Like, yeah, I was wrong. Like I, I shouldn't have had a doubt. Like, it was a difference of opinion. And maybe they would have been fine with my plan too, but like they were fine on the other plan. So like, again, my clinical experience isn't fantastic because I don't have it. I, that's what residency is all about. So that's one aspect that I didn't really like that they were really like driving home. You know, I get it. You want to empower doctors, the interns, second years, third years, whatever, to make medical decisions and stand up for themselves and stand up for what they think. Totally buy into that. There were other opinions I, I really do agree. I did tend to agree with, like, um, if you're unhappy with how the patient came to you, <laughs> it's okay to be mad about it, but then shut up and get to work. Like, I, I kind of agreed with that, like, the thought process was like you're a resident on a resident floor. You're going to get, you're going to get patients dumped on you, and it sucks. It's not fun. It's probably not good for the patient, but there's nothing you can do about it. You're a resident. You're being those patients are being dumped on you by an attending somewhere else. So you can be mad about it, but suck it up and get back to work and take care of the patient and. Our program director, I think his final comment was, is do what's best for the patient. Like <laughs> if you're deciding what to, what do you, what do you want to do for in this situation? Like, oh, do I want to discharge this patient? I feel like he's unstable. Or do I want to um, keep him for a day? Just think about what is best for this patient and do what you think is best for the patient. And 
that was kind of his advice. And that's kind of kind of cliche, but uh, I think it makes sense. If you think you do what's best for the patient, you're not going to end up getting sued. <laughs> Hopefully yeah. we'll have taken care of the patient. The patient will do well, uh, whatever that means. So anyway, that was kind of a, a takeaway. I, I was, I don't know. I'm still, I guess, chewing on a little bit. I just, uh, I tend to want to think about some of these things that we get told by seniors in third years who have, they do have clinical experience. And then they're like, these interns should have figured it out. <laughs> it's like, nah, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, but that's why we have a residency, right? Like that's why, you know, we're, we're being watched by seniors. We're not all by ourselves with, you know, no one overwatching us. So I am thankful for that opportunity to be in a residency that does have seniors that are looking over you. So anyway, um, that was my soapbox. And I know we're getting <laughs> a little bit long here. Uh, and then one of our children is starting to sing the song of his people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's about that time of the night when he does that. Yeah. Um, anything you want to add, Karen? No. Um, any questions, feel free to follow us or feel free to message us on MedFamilyMD on Instagram. Please follow us on any of the major platforms. Um, for those of you who are in match, that's exciting. I hope you get lots of interviews. Um, if you have any questions about the interviews or the interview process or what you should wear or lighting or any of that, feel free to shoot us a message. We might, I don't know if we're going to cover that again. We can cover it briefly. It's not actually a very, it doesn't need a long, (laughs) long answer, honestly. um, But um, we wish you the best of luck and we will talk to you next week. Maybe. Bye. Bye.